Welcome to Signal Path, the podcast where we talk to people from the world of audio about their ideas, opinions, and methods. In today's Signal Path podcast, we speak with mastering engineer Matt Colton. Matt has been a mastering engineer since 1997, having worked at Porky's, Air Studios, and Optimum before becoming a partner at Alchemy Mastering in 2012. Within a year, Matt won the prestigious Music Producers Guild Award for Mastering Engineer of the Year. He has worked with the likes of Muse, Coldplay, James Blake, Leffield, Gary Newman, and Peter Gabriel, to name just a few, while still maintaining a very healthy list of clients from the electronic underground. In this episode, Matt talks about why he encourages attended mastering sessions, the difference between mastering for vinyl versus digital, his preferred equipment, and of course, his signal path. The Matt Colton interview is coming up next. I'm going to start off with a quote. Um, so I looked on Wikipedia, yep. and the definition of mastering is the process of preparing and transferring recorded audio from a source containing the final mix to a data storage device. Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, that's nailed it completely. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I guess, I, yeah, there's nothing kind of inherently wrong with that definition. Um, I mean, I would say mastering something the audio mastering that I'm involved in um, really has kind of two components and one is the technical aspect of which that quote is kind of a a wordy way of saying um, you know you're basically taking you know a bunch of different recordings and formatting them in a way that uh, can then be replicated or you know outputted to the listener um, you know whether that's you know cutting lacquers for vinyl mm-hmm. manufacturer, whether that's you know creating WAVs um, to be used, uh, you know sent to iTunes for your mastered for iTunes masters. Um, essentially, whatever kind of master format you're creating, there's a certain amount of technical specification allied to that that you have to meet. Otherwise, the master will fail in some way, shape, or form. You know, okay. um, if you're uh, yeah, if you're cutting a vinyl record and you cut it so that uh, it jumps, then you know that's a fail. You've kind of failed the technical specification. Or if you cut a 12-inch, but it's actually only a 7-inch record, you know it it doesn't work, right? So yeah. there's, there's, you know, um, if you supply a, a 16-bit file for a mastered for iTunes master, it will be rejected. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's you know those are kind of very obvious and simple sort of uh, aspects of the technical side of mastering. Um, and it, that's hugely important, that kind of technical aspect. And then, you know, what has evolved over time, I guess, is the, the kind of creative aspect of mastering, sure. which is um, whereby we have some influence over the sound of the recording. Um, you know, a good mastering studio will be designed to be a very good acoustic space. So, you know, hopefully you're hearing um, a very good representation of what has been recorded. Uh, with a great deal of accuracy Um, and hopefully the mastering engineer also brings a lot of experience to the table of listening to finished mixes um, and therefore has a good understanding hopefully of how the record could sound and perhaps you know maybe how it even should sound um, or at least an opinion on how it should sound Um, so they can then perform some kind of creative work to steer the sound of the recording you know, towards an ideal. So you kind of got that creative aspect as well. And I guess, um, having said that there's two sides to it, I would guess the third part of it, um, which 
perhaps is part of the first part of it. Um, <laughs> the third part is, um, I guess, the, the kind of QC aspects, you know, the quality control. Um, and that can be things like, you know, okay, there's some clicks in this recording. Um, either no one's noticed up until now or, you know, and people have noticed but, you know, haven't been able to do anything about it. You know, we go in and clean that up or... Um, gotcha. Uh, a, a record I'm working on at the minute is a live concert and I've got you know 10 mixes 10 live tracks um, you know they all needed to be mixed separately um, to get the best out of their individual elements and have been mixed very nicely and they sound great um, you know and I have mastered them uh, but in doing so I realised that we don't have enough um, atmos hall noise audience to kind of lace it all back together in a way that's going to kind of work to present it once again as a continuous live concert. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, of course. Um, no one's really thought about that in this project until it's kind of got to me. Do you know what I mean? So it's 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 all those kind of things. You know, you you I guess you're the, you know, you're the wicketkeeper. You know, stopping the. Ball so I guess this is why you're a respected engineer, though, because you're more than happy to go back to the client and say, "I'm sorry, but the way you've provided these pre-masters is maybe not what we need." we could do with this well i think it's 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 all part of the job you know i mean there's no you know that's not me trying to say hey you know you guys are stupid um i know much more than you why haven't you done this it's kind of like well has this been thought about because it might be that um we're going to hit a problem down the line if we don't think about this now or it might be um you know there's a better way of doing things which for one reason or another, you know, hasn't been thought of or, or, or whatever, do you know what I mean? And it's not... Yeah, yeah I mean, it, as, as far as I'm concerned, what I do, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, how in-depth it is in the project or not. It, the only aim for all of us is to make the best-sounding recording. It's not an ego thing or anything like that. It's just, you yeah. know, whatever... If I can be of help, then, yeah. that's, that's then the I will be, yeah. do you know what I mean? That's the time to do um, it. Yeah. Um, on that subject of pre-masters, um, obviously you receive pre-masters every day, mm. um, and obviously there, there, of course, there are exceptions to every rule. But what is your typical, ideal pre-master? I guess so. So most importantly is how it sounds, um, okay. and what we want is for it to sound. This is going to sound like stating the obvious, but we want it to sound as good as possible, and we want it to sound as close as possible to how you want it to sound. Um, and that's not because um, I'm scared of changing things and it's not because I'm too lazy to make big changes. But the, the most important reference point I get as to how someone wants something to sound is how they make things sound. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, if you mix a record with tons and tons of bass on it, um, I might think that's, that's got tons, that's way too much bass. But what it does tell me is... Um, you probably like a lot of bass. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That might mean that we still need to take bass away, but if I you know, prune it and make it sound thin like a 1982 you know, pop record, um, you're not going to be happy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, the most important thing is people try and get it to sound as right as they can. And then really from, from there... Um, it's about providing the best brief as possible with regards to the sound. Um, and part of my job is to actually, you know, take that brief. And if I don't have the information, 
to try and extract it. So we talk about the record and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, if you've mixed a record and you're like, I've played it at home and it just sounds a bit thin. Okay, great. I now know that you think that this mix sounds thin. We probably need to at least, you know... Enhance. Uh, yeah, I something. mean, I certainly... That needs to be something that I need to look at, you yeah. know. Okay. Um, so even if you haven't been able to nail the sound if you let me know what things about it that you're not happy with do you know what i mean yeah the, the more information that i have the better able i am to do what you want which is i want to do what you want and you want me <laughs> to do what you want um so so that's again you know the, the kind of the creative side on the technical side of things um what can i tell you uh wabs or afes um yep. you know not mp3s not aacs yes um Ideally, I don't want something that's been limited. And the reason for that is, once you've done that, there's kind of less processing that we can put on top of that before it all starts to, the sound starts to fall apart. Understood. So, if you smash something through a limiter, um, it means if it doesn't sound right or close to being right, it's, I'm not going to be able to do much about that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but some people do like to do that, and 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 that's part of their sound. And you know, in those cases, I would normally say, "Well, give me a version with and without." And you know, it might be that I can use your unlimited one, but get the feeling that you've got with your limited one, but still have room to make the changes that we think we want to do. Okay. Um, but I mean, ultimately, you know, I've 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 done records for people where they're like, "Look, you know, you've told me to take the limiter off, but." I'm not going to because I like it and that's fine. Do you know okay. what I mean? It's not it's not my record. So I'm led by the client and uh, the other thing to mention, you know, every mastering engineer will will give you a slightly different kind of spec as to what they want. That's kind of how best to work with me, but you know, if you're working with, you know, mastering engineer Joe Bassmaster Smith yep. or whoever, um, they may have a completely different set of requirements and and the best thing to do is just communicate and um, you know if we all try and find the ways of working together you sort of end up getting the best result that sort of leads me perfectly to my next question and the reason why I came across you as a master engineer in the first place is some friends have recommended you but also said that you encourage attended sessions which unbelievably is actually not that popular or is not that common mm. some people don't encourage it so just wonder what your take is on why you do that and does it save you lots of effort in the long term? Um, I, I think it works well for me. Um, I know why some some people don't like being watched whilst they work. They may view it as taking longer because the client may make suggestions of things to try, and this kind of thing. Um, that's it's it's not my view at all. I'm quite happy. You know, I'll sit next to anyone. Um, you know, this is my this is my studio. Do you know what I mean? You're in my town, so there isn't anyone that can walk in here and and make me feel in some way inadequate or nervous about what I'm doing. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm uh, you know I have no worries about anyone coming to sit in. And and what I find and what I have found, and also you know I like to chat and I like to hang out and you know we have a laugh. Do you know what I mean? As, as you know, we've done loads of sessions and you know invariably we have a nice time doing it um for sure you know and that's it's not a show do you know what i mean we're just getting on because it's fun um but what what i what i've found so often is um you know when you're doing stuff remotely um 
you know, you, you send something to the client and two days later they're like, oh yeah, you know, oh, uh, just wondering if uh, track three could be a bit louder, you know, and it's like, well actually I, I did try it, you know, I pushed it kind of as hard as I could and I tried a few different ways. Um, and if you were here, you would see that actually, no, we're, we're kind of at the, at the end stops on that track. Um, and then they're like, oh, but can we try it anyway? It's like, okay, so here you go, here it's a bit louder. Oh yeah, no, I see it doesn't work. Okay, let's go back to the, to the version that you did. And, you know, a whole week's passed, you know, or this track, I just feel like it could be a bit brighter. You know, when it's brighter, it makes the voice sound hard and, you know, the voice is the most important aspect in this particular piece. Oh, can we try it? Oh yeah, it's made the voice sound hard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you sat next to me, we've done that in five minutes. You know, we, we've been through it. Um, I guess the client leaves here and you're both happy and that's the end yeah, result. Yeah, uh, it, it tends to be that we're closer to the, to the end much quicker than yeah, it, when the client is here um, and also you know they they kind of see you know there's no I'm not kind of hiding anything there's no like tricks or anything uh, you know you can see what I'm doing you can you know we can have a chat about what I'm hearing and why I'm doing what I'm doing and and hopefully people are a bit more reassured that you know okay he has thought about this you know there's a reason as to why he's he's done this or that you know yeah. it's not just arbitrarily <coughs> twiddling knobs and you know so um so for me, for all those reasons, I prefer attended sessions. So how has technology changed what you do over the last 10 to 15 years? You know, certainly, you know, communicating via the internet um, has, has, has sort of opened the doors. I mean, you know, when I started... Uh, I started doing this in '97, so the, you know the internet existed, but it wasn't, you know, you know we were still communicating via phone and fax, you know, and uh, you know we weren't like luddites in 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 our field, you know that's just the way it was. You know, I had a session with um, some Parisian clients, and the geezer had flown over from Paris, and he'd forgotten the dats, and he realised this when I said to him at the start of the session, "Cool, have you got the dats?" And he looked through his bags. You know, his face fell, and then he left, and then he flew back to Paris, and you know had to come back. Um, that doesn't happen now, um, partly because you know most of the time people will send stuff on the internet, but also, you know, stuff's on a Dropbox, or you know, it's opened the door to working with people, you know, from all around the world, and you know, not just sending and receiving files, but even you know things like, you know, Google Translate, or you know, yeah, you know, we can get by and we can do business. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's that's changed, that's changed things massively. Um, in terms of the, the kind of studio equipment, I mean, you know, my room, it, it's you know, it's a lot of analog stuff. A lot of that is is old. You know, my lathe is. What lathe really, is that? It's a Neumann VMS eighty. Okay, um, just for the geeks. For the geeks, yeah. You know, it, it dates to. Um, well, I think the official launch date was 1980, but um, you know this is one of the one of the earliest. And I think if you crept out in 79, you know, so it's it's right at the very very beginnings of that. You know, um, the EQ, the Sontech EQ, that's 40 years old. You know, so a lot of this stuff, you know, is quite old. And then you know, there's new analog pieces there, um, but again, they're just doing things that you know you would still be doing 15, 20 years ago. Um, but it's really the computers and, you know, in the main, it's things like digital limiters, um, you know, plugins, plugins are incredible. 
you know, absolutely amazing what you can do with plugins, you know, and, and the cost, it, you know, it's, man, I, you know, I wish we had this stuff when I was growing up, because when we were making tunes, um, you know, on computers, it was, it was basic and it was really hard and it, you know to get a, a vague you couldn't get a professional result you know without spending lots of money um but from a mastering perspective you know digital limiters um which you know virtually all plugins now you know i have i have a couple of hardware digital limiters but you know most of the time we'd be using plugins and and that means for very low cost i've got you know, probably eight different limiters um, just that I can access, you know, at the click of a finger. I mean, some people would argue that that's a bad thing because it, loudness wars and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, they're incredibly powerful tools. And, you know, same with things like DSs, um, you know, multiband compressors and all these kinds of things. And, um, you know, restoration tools, you know, we have so much of this stuff sitting on the computer that it just the the things that we can do, you know, just blow away what we could do sure. 20 years ago when I started. Um, so though you've got loads of analog gear, then you're you're more than partial to software. I know yeah, yeah. I've seen you use a, a there's a software EQ you use. I'm just wondering why, what and in what instances might you use a software EQ over say a hardware one? Um, generally, if I'm doing stuff with plugins, it's to avoid. Um, either because that tool doesn't exist in the analog domain or in the hardware domain, or it's to avoid, you know, some kind of like real time going out through, you know, DAs back in through ADs. Do you know what I mean? You know, you're going to lose some quality. You know, sometimes if you just want to add a DB at 10K um, and that's, that's it, you don't want any kind of coloration or any other change. Um, the best way to do that is, is, you know, in digits, and the best way to do that is probably with the plugin, and and that's cool. You know, we don't. There's no there's no shame in that. You know, you don't get like extra credit for using analog EQ, or you know, you know, with the digital stuff, um, you can be much more precise in general. You know, usually, you know, the analog stuff is usually more kind of broad strokes and flavors. If you really want to home in, you know, and, and notch out an annoying buzz or or you know whatever it is, you're probably going to be more successful using using digital. I like the Synaxis plugins. You know, uh, I think their EQ is it's kind of cool. I mean, it clean. Yeah, it, it's clean. Um, you know, it, it has. I think it has a nice sound. It can sometimes sound a, a little bit slow. I think maybe slow things down a, a fraction. Um, but it's it's very very good. It, and you know, it's like a hundred quid or something. You know, it's it's sensational for the money. Um, I also, you know, like the, for example, the BX um, EQ, which again I think is is stunning, and you know I use that every day. Is there a piece of equipment here that you that's pretty much your go-to that's used on almost every track you master? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I would say because I mean, there's not hundreds and hundreds of pieces of equipment here, so no. you're obviously quite selective in what you do have. Well, I, I guess it would be great to have you know 16 different compressors, and. Um, you know that would be cool. It's probably better to have two really good analog compressors, like I have got, and know them, them inside out, inside out, and back to front. Because there's there's not a lot that I can't do with those that I I could do with something else. It's important not to buy everything at once. Um, 
you know, so we've been here for four years, you know, and, I, you know, I spend a reasonable amount of money every year on different aspects of the studio. Um, you know, in, in the last year, I've completely recabled all the analog and digital side of things and changed the clocking in here, which is, you know, it's a massive investment. It just doesn't show up as more knobs and lights in the rack, but actually it's made everything sound much better. Um, but if you if you kind of just keep adding periodically, then that means you can really get to know each piece of kit. The same logic you've just described is sort of applies to people making music at home. You know, it's better to have two simps and two drum machines yeah. that you know inside out than it is yeah. to have 13 that yeah. you're still reading the manual every time you need it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we all, I mean, you know, I, I get gear lust, you know, I suffer like massively, you know, I really do. You know, I sometimes, you know, dream about buying pieces of kit. You know, I'm, I'm there. Um, so I totally, totally get it. But, you know, there's very few things that will, um, like, give you a kind of quantum leap forward, you know. There are things that will maybe, you know, make you do things slightly differently and there are things that will, you know, maybe reinvigorate you or make you have a bit more fun for a period of time. Um, and that's, you know, that's cool and that's all important. But, you know, you can't be hamstrung by, you know, I need this, I can't finish this track until I've got, you know... a Juno to do the bass lines or you know I can't cut a record until I've you know gone out and bought this valve EQ because you can yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in answer to your question which we kind of meandered away from I, I guess the Sontech EQ um, it's you know like I said I've been doing this for, for 20 years and um, has that been a constant then? That, no, no, no no I've only had it for three years and I will always have it from really? here on in yeah Simple no question no question it it you know it goes on 90% of what I do you know if I'm going into analog and I'm EQing this, it's on there it's going through there yeah no yeah problem. yeah um, it's sensational as this podcast is called signal path yes what is a typical signal path for your good self in here my pre-master comes to you yeah and what would it what's the typical order it would go well, through I mean I guess uh, okay so I mean I guess there's like three um, three varieties, if you like. So, so first of all, is you know we might not really actually have a signal path as such. You know, we might just do it all with plugins. Okay. Um, so it, it it doesn't necessarily go anywhere. I like to work in analog, and and you know especially, um, you know usually I think most recordings can take a bit of analog um, when it's kind of done properly, and by that I mean. Um, we'll play it out through a very, very high-quality D2A converter um, with, you know, very, very good clocking. So everything's um, clocked, you know, through uh, master clock um, generators which sync the whole room and we have some external re-clocking boxes to remove jitter along the way and all this kind of stuff. And then we have, you know, very, very high-quality AES cabling for all the digital stuff. We have very, very high-quality um, analog cable. Uh, and then we might, you know, hit um, the analog EQ. If it needs some compression, we may then hit an analog compressor. Mm -hmm. um, we may, uh, you know, potentially we may hit two analog compressors. Um, you know, in mastering, I find that I don't compress stuff very much. You know, maybe, you know, often um, we're only looking at like one to two dB of compression. Um, 
and so it's more for the flavour rather than the. It's more for the flavour rather than you know dr- dramatically reducing the dynamic range. But what I do quite like to do is you know maybe do that across two different compressors. You know, it might be the ones digital and ones analog. It might be a couple of analogs or you know that kind of thing. Um, and then we'll go back in to digits. You know, through a very kind of high quality A to D converter. And you know, then record it in uh, in a second workstation, um, and we then may apply some digital limiting. You know, if we're trying to get the, the sort of contemporary levels that you know, contemporary music that people are used of, to. Yeah, it, it kind of where we're at at the minute. So, you know, that that would be a, a kind of common signal path. I mean, in terms of, for me, in in terms of mastering the, the kind of order of doing things, my my starting point would be EQ into compressor into limiter. Yeah. Okay. Um, we don't always want to compress. We don't always want to limit. We don't always want to EQ. I mean, this is a you know this is a, a cool experiment. You know, if you've got a bit of EQ and you're then hitting the compressor and you're then hitting the limiter and you think that sounds pretty cool, if you swap the compressor and the EQ round, so you're compressing, then hitting the EQ and then into the limiter, it will sound quite different. You know, it really will change things, especially things like snares and vocals and that kind of thing. And and you know, even you haven't changed the settings. Do you know what I mean? You've just flipped the order. Um, but for me, thinking about it logically, EQ is kind of increasing the dynamic range. Um, if we, if the overall aim is to reduce the dynamic range, I'm not saying that that is always the aim, but frequently it is in mastering. It kind of makes sense to do the EQing first, increasing the dynamic range, and then uh, decreasing it with a compressor, and then decreasing it further with a limiter till you get to the end point that you want. Do you see what I mean? That, that's kind of the the sort of logic behind it. But as with all these kind of things, you know, there shouldn't be rules. Yeah. Um, it's just a starting point. Okay. Um, you know, and I mean, I know people that uh, you know the first thing they hit is a limiter, and then EQ, and then compress, and then limit again, and you know. You can make stuff really super loud doing that. I don't. I don't like doing it. It kind of, yeah. It's not. It's not my thing. It's not the. You know. I've. I've tried it. Even though you do plenty of electronic music, where a lot of people might expect that, it's good that you still. Well, I kind keep of. Your... Uh, yeah, I. I kind of don't. Don't think that I need to do that. You know, maybe once in a blue moon, when it's kind of like, okay, you want this loud, and this is the only way we're going to get there, and you know. How it sounds, well, that's a secondary concern for you. Yeah. Loud is your first concern. <laughs> okay, fine. You know, if that's what we have Here to we do, go. that's what we have to do. Okay. Um, but for me, you know, my, for me, it's always how it sounds first and then how loud we can make it. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it makes sense. Uh, the gentleman's way to do it. I, I guess so, yeah, because, you know, loudness is such a... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think you said this to me thing. before. Like, you know, in DJs in clubs and people at home, you, there is a volume control, so yeah. you can always turn it up yeah. if, if it's not as loud as your previous record or your yeah. previous. Completely, whatever. and you know, with streaming, I mean, you know, kind of loudness normalization. Um, well, loudness normalization in broadcast is brilliant now. You know, it really is. The um, uh, the EBU um, R one two two eight, I think R one two eight. Uh, law that was passed a couple of years ago has just completely sorted out loudness levels in in broadcast or not as good as completely sorted out you know so you don't get this wild variance of like a really loud song followed by quiet do you know what i mean it's it's been done really nicely and streaming platforms you know spotify has um 
okay loudness normalization you know youtube have started to look at it title has it but it's opt-in unfortunately and it should be opt-out you know if you if you don't want loudness normalization you should have to turn it off um you know itunes has sound check do you know what i mean so so it's it's we're getting much closer to the point where this kind of like overall loudness for the for loudness sake you know should become a thing of the past at some point Um, and we can just get back to making things as dynamic as they should be yeah you know as we want them to be you know and that's not to say something should necessarily be massively dynamic i like things that are slammed to to death i mean you know i was doing a record with um you know sort of very heavy drone rock band um just recently and you know it there's there's no dynamics uh, really to speak of it's just like intense like 20 minutes of like sound pressure do you know what i mean and it, it, but it's like it's almost transcendental as an experience you know at the end of it I mean, we spent all day working on these records and we were like you know almost physically shaking at the end of the session oh. you know there's no dynamics um but it's not about that you know we 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 you know we were it's like an out of body experience it was it was amazing so it's right for that but you know for a you. you know kind of solo acoustic guitar <coughs> folk record yeah it wouldn't have been right and so it's nice when you can just do what's right and not like oh yeah but hey you know i'm the a and r man and if this isn't as loud as you know <laughs> the last mumford and sons record then it won't be a hit I just wanted to get your opinion on mastering for vinyl versus mastering for digital. Because there are some mastering engineers that will give you one file that is technically for both. Mm. I know you do something different for vinyl versus digital. So I'm just wondering what, what it, how you would master something differently for the two different formats. I guess the short answer is, um, you know, you pay different attention to the EQ, the dynamics and the stereo image, which kind of makes me sound like a bit of a dick for saying that but um we can be i think that we can afford to be a bit more dynamic um on vinyl okay uh, not all the time um again it's sometimes not appropriate but uh and the crazy thing is the signal to noise on a record is so much worse than we can achieve you know on a 16-bit digital file it's ridiculous that um we're being more dynamic on vinyl but you know that's the world that we currently live in uh but with a record you have to get up and you have to turn the record over you have to you want to play another record you've got to get up you've got to put it on the turntable you know so there's no impediment for someone to adjust the volume do you know what i mean it's not like you know i'm on the tube i've got my ipod on shuffle yes. you know it's a pain to have to keep adjusting the volume you've got so much else to do anyway that adjusting the volume is just part of the whole you know routine of, of playing records so in essence it doesn't we're not all kind of trying to drive equal loudness on a, on a record and the, the other thing of course is that um the greatest determinant of how loud a record is cut is how long it is you know um so we don't have uh, you know we can't just say right this is how loud it should be you know it, it's there's a whole number of factors and so so because of that um you know i 
kind of take the view well let's let's you know maybe just be a bit more dynamic um okay. and as soon as i started doing that i just got way way busier cutting <laughs> records and people would talk to me about how great my record sounded and it's just you know there's no trick you know um they sound better than your digital files because you know we're kind of 5db more dynamic and that's actually what you want i know that you're telling me that you want it to be as loud as hell but what you actually enjoy is when it breathes a bit more and you know the snare pops a bit more and you know the quiet bits are quiet and you know the the kind of bass extension isn't all kind of clustered at 100 hertz you know because the limiter's clamping it down it's literally it's going through the floor and you know your ankle the trousers around your ankles are flapping and <laughs> you know so so dynamics we can do differently um okay. eq wise you know we we have to pay different kind of levels of attention to the high frequencies especially um you know it's not it's not just a case of you know oh you want the record to be this bright so we put that much treble on it because it might be that I know you want it to be that bright but that shake is going to distort so um, we're going to have it less bright and then the shaker won't distort and you'll be happier with that you know and I, I can demonstrate that do you know what I mean yeah. I, you know because okay. there's nothing worse than high frequency distortion on a record you know it's not musical it's not um, you know nice even harmonics like you get if you're distorting a you know a valve amplifier with a guitar or you know if you're distorting a signal by recording it a little bit hot to tape you know it's it's um it's uneven harmonics and it, it sounds ugly um uh and, and the other thing is that you know the stereo image we we usually can't get uh, you know things like stereo bass very very difficult on vinyl oh, right, um, that's right. You know, and the the depth of the groove, um, or the amount of stereo there is in a recording, uh, the more stereo there is, the, the deeper the groove will cut. It's the groove depth that kind of represents the stereo image. But there is, there's not an infinite amount of depth you can go to. You know, there's only a finite amount of of kind of minimum to maximum sort okay. of depth ratio that you can go. So you might have to. You know, adjust sure. the stereo so, image. So sorry, um, the so vinyl you will have to have a mono bass pretty much, in, and in digital you can have a stereo bass. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can. It's not that you can't cut stereo bass. You can, but um, for best results. Well, you're not going to be able to cut as loudly, and and you know you might you might have to sacrifice quite a lot of loudness in order to get the stereo bass. Uh, sure. On. Okay. Um, and it's going to be much more difficult for record players to track it. So, you know, it, we might have to make other compromises, you know, in order to try and get a record that everyone's going to be able to play. So it's doable. If you're making, a, you know, a kind of electronic dance track, I really wouldn't recommend it. And um, the thing to consider as well with, with, with all stereo, but especially stereo bass is, um, you know, who exactly is going to be able to reproduce it in, in a way that sounds like how it does when you know you've got it in your studio do you know what i mean clubs aren't going to be reproducing stereo bass you know or 99 percent of them aren't um you know people listening at home you're sort of relying on them having two well-matched speakers you know kind of equally uh, you know placed from the corners in the room and that kind of thing you know you go around most people's houses how they've got the stereo set up that it, it, it can be a bit haphazard um 
you know, people listening on laptops. Do you yeah. know what I mean? There's no bass on them at all. So it's it's kind of cool. I mean, for me, stereo bass, it usually sounds weird. It, it, it feels like it's kind of pulling my head apart outwards, um, <laughs> which, can, I mean, that can be amazing, obviously. But, you know, usually it, it kind of feels a bit off-putting and, you know, you sort of move your self around the room you know you take a step to the right and 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 then the whole thing's changed massively you know and you, two steps to the left it's changed in another way do you know yeah. what i mean it's um yeah it, it's okay. kind of a bit of a weird one to do with um how music is replayed but also to do with um uh, human beings are very good at locating directionality in higher frequencies you know if um you know if i do that you you can instantly you know i mean you'd be able to pinpoint where it's happening whereas you know if i play a little 30 hertz thump you know it's going to sound like it's kind of coming from a much more vague direction you know so you, you you're trying to sort of your stereo image is about fooling the brain into thinking something has a you know kind of three dimensions of sound um but the brain's just not really up for the trick, uh, you know, when we're talking about low frequencies. What's the whole excitement about half-speed mastering? What exactly does half-speed mastering mean when it comes to vinyl, um, to a layman? Uh, so uh, you play the... Um, so when you're cutting a record, you, you, you play the music um, and the lathe cuts it, and that all happens in real time. Um, and when you do it at half-speed, you play the music at half-speed, half the pitch. Mm-hmm. And the lathe runs, uh, the disc spins. Instead of spinning at 33 and a third RPM, it's spinning at whatever, at half that is, 16 and 7. 16 eight, and a half? Something like that. Oh, um, yes, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, I should know that. <laughs> um, so that when you then play the record back at 33, um, the music is all pitched and sped back up to normal speed, so it, it replays at the correct speed, yeah? Okay. Um, and the reason uh, that can be better um, is, uh, well, there's the sort of numerous reasons. Um, if you take the cutting amplifiers, by playing everything at half the pitch, um, you, uh, you essentially um, don't need to uh, put as loud a signal through, so you've got more headroom in the amplifiers. Um, and that means that you get a better kind of transient response. As with any amplifier, the, the bigger the amount of headroom, the better the transient response. Okay. And because you've also pitched everything down by half, those transients are actually half as fast anyway. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So something that would take you know five milliseconds to occur occurs in ten milliseconds. So the amps um, actually don't need to work as hard anyway. Uh, plus, they're more efficient. Um, the uh, the cutting head itself has some um, some non-linearities in the high frequency at the extremes of high frequency, uh, sort of around about 17 kilohertz. Um, now, when you're cutting at half speed, essentially those non-linearities are at 35 kilohertz, which means that you know there's nothing; they're not affecting anything. Um, or not affecting anything that could be replayed, let's say. So um, the the cutting head, you, you're sort of working, more of the music is working in the in the kind of good bit of the, the cutting head's performance, if you like. Um, if you think of the cutting stylus itself, the cutting stylus um, cuts the groove by wobbling around, yeah? 
whilst it's uh, sort of suspended into the lacquer surface, it's you know it's moving side to side and up and down, um, and it's um, you know carving an analog of the waveform. If you're asking it to do the same job at but half as quickly, um, it's much less limited by physical inertia. It can only move so fast, so. Uh, it sometimes doesn't cut the finer detail, you know, as as well as um, you'd like it to, because it's it can't, you know, gravity and and all the rest of it limit, you know, it, it has a physical inertia. But if you're saying, well, you only need to do it at half this speed, obviously it's going to be able to work more accurately. So yeah. the groove, which is an analog of the waveform that you're cutting, therefore is a more accurate representation of the waveform than if you're doing it at normal speed. One of the quirks of the system is that uh, when you speed it back up to normal speed, um, it gets 3 dB louder. So by that token, that means that you can either cut louder to a certain extent, because you, you've essentially you've got 3 dB extra free. That's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's noticeable. Um, or you can cut longer sides, you know, so I mean, things like um, Kamasi Washington's um, epic album that came out a year or so ago, a uh, jazz uh, musician from L.A., and, it, you know, it, it, his album just went massive. Um, it's a triple vinyl. I think the shortest side we cut was 30 minutes. And it sounds great. You know, it sounds... It's, it's fine. Um, you know, I think one of the sides is like 32 and a half minutes long. But it doesn't sound like you know thin and quiet, and, you know it. Which it, might be the case if we, it was recorded oh, we, without we, half speed. Yeah, we, we had to do it at half speed. It was the only way. Um, but it, it it completely works. Um, you know, uh, I mean, what I like to do with the half speed um, is maybe cut something a little bit louder than I would cut it normally. But you see, uh, things that take up space on a disc because there's a finite amount of space on a record disc, yeah, um, are overall loudness, bass content is going to take up space, and stereo image, right? So, you know, if it's a short side, I might only have a roll-off at like 15 hertz or something. But if it's a long side, you know, we might be rolling off at like 30, 35 hertz. Whereas if I'm cutting at half speed, I just won't have that roll-off at all, and I'll just let have that full low-frequency extension. And same with the stereo image. You know, we can normally get a, a kind of wider stereo image on the half-speed cut, you know, allied to the fact we've got a better transient response. Uh, you know, the, the cutting head we're using in, in a more optimal way, so we just have a kind of better sound overall. There's loads of studios all around closing down. Alchemy seems to be doing very well. Touch wood. Touch um, wood. Just wonder what's next, what's next for you and what's next for Alchemy? Uh... Next for us, I mean, I, um, there's two of you at the moment, right here. Or? There's there's two of us, and you know, hopefully by the end of the year we'll have finished the third studio um, for the third partner. You know, so that will be, you know, we started four years ago with one room. You know, um, uh, hopefully by the end of kind of the fourth year, you know, we'll have three rooms, um, and we're you know we're entirely we're entirely self financed. Uh, it's a company that's owned by three engineers. Um, we don't have massive debt. Uh, none of us were rich men, so you know it hasn't been bankrolled with lots and lots of borrowing. Um, you know we've built it out of turnover, if you like. So it's very rewarding to know that we've kind of paid for everything as we go along. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and hopefully it 
it's more sustainable because of that. You know, we're not mortgaged up to the eyeballs. Um, I guess really just, you know, continuing to kind of grow, um, just, just continuing to grow the business um, in terms of, uh, you know, all of us hopefully doing, you know, continuing to do good work and just trying to do better work, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we likely to see a, a Matt Colton preset on any software in the future? Um, I'd, I'd, I'd be deeply flattered, but I don't know. Um, I mean, waves have kind of gone crazy at the minute. Yeah, and, and there's Eddie Kramer tape, and there's lots of other things where yeah. a master engineer or someone has their name to it. So yeah, yeah. Um, but I quite like that kind of approach of you know because I mean yeah you know someone could model a compressor and and put my name on it and you know I could come up with a, you know some some presets for it and and yeah, a bit of philosophy and that would be cool. But you know what I really like is is the ones where they've sort of said, well, you know, why just model a compressor? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, great. Um, you know, here's a, another G-Series model. You know, it sounds great because it's a G-Series and they sound great. But it's kind of cool when someone said, yeah, but what if we just do something completely crazy? And then, you know, so I'd be I'd be right for that. But, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm open to offers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. That was Mastering Engineer Matt Colton. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe for more discussions with artists, engineers, and moves and shakers from the world of audio. This is Signal Path.